compare this generation. It was like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. <clears throat> All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> now, I just want to give my little disclaimer for this morning, and that is, it is challenging to preach messages that are not exciting and full of what seem to be great encouragement. But they're necessary, mainly because the Lord has given to us the message. We're just repeating the message of the Lord. And I think what you'll hear in this is some examples of how people have pushed away the truth of the Lord, but the Lord continuously brings us back to what he wants us to know. And we are not to be people who just decide for him what we receive, but we listen to everything carefully that he has given to us and make decisions and our determination from what he has said, not what we want him to be saying. And so again, just a little disclaimer for us. Uh, I hope you're not sitting here this morning, or those of you who are watching by online, thank you for joining us this morning and uh, coming up with a, uh, another doom and gloom kind of message. Well, I hope you don't hear that, but you will certainly hear truth from the Lord this morning if you're listening carefully. So let's just think back to our message from last time. I told you that I was going to have to break this message up into two parts because you see the length of it. We covered the first part last time. And uh, as Jesus is looking at the crowd, he's giving a, uh, a warning, if you will, and that should be clear by now, to them. And those warnings were because he knows that for a person to feel really good about their life, which is what we want, right? We want to live this life feeling really good about ourselves and feeling good about life and how we are living everything that comes to us. He knows that we have to feel really bad about ourselves first. But I want to qualify what I'm saying. I thought through that this week, and I thought it may have been a little confusing on that, and I, I don't want to do that. So I want to make sure that you're hearing what I'm saying carefully. And that is, the Lord understands in us that we are priceless, redeemable souls. Every one of us has a redeeming value about us. That's why he came. That's why God loves us so. The problem was like we read last time with the Apostle Paul as he was giving to us his message from Romans 7, is that the problem is not with us as redeemable people. The problem is the sin that lives in us. That's what causes us to follow the darkness and what keeps us. And so people will often hear, oh, preacher, you're just giving a doom and gloom, and you're telling me how bad and wicked I am, and i got to mourn everything in my life. Well, that may be the case, but the reality is God wants you to rejoice in what he's done for you which is coming to rescue you, but to acknowledge the fact that I am without hope, without confessing my sin, the sin that drives me to be rebellious and to be distant from him, the sin that we all have, the Lord says. And so I just want you to hear that clearly, and maybe that will be a little bit clearer for you, that um, yes, we do need to feel bad about ourselves, but never missing the point that we are redeemable, that God will forgive us. But we've got to first understand that our sin drives us away from him. Okay? So now, as we look at that understanding, we realize that sin is really that thing that keeps us from being all that God wants us to be, which is, again, what Paul was talking about last time. So today we're going to look at two more warnings as we complete this particular section. You can call them cautions if you want to. Um, I've titled it just, just that, and God gives us a couple more warnings to think about. And, and you know what a warning is. It's that flag, it's that sign, it's that symbol that says, hey, pay attention. Something is either coming up on the road, or it's it's in the lane, or it's, it's something that is the person who put it there, or the group that put it there, wants you to be aware that there's something very serious that's needing to be heeded to. And so that's what's happening here. And the first warning is for today is be cautious of a critical spirit. Be cautious of a critical spirit. And notice what Jesus says here in verse 16. 
He says, to what shall I compare this generation? Now that phrase, is, or that question really, is just a simple illustration or a way to express himself in the day that he was living. It was a common expression, kind of similar to how we would illustrate ourselves by saying something else. How can I, how can I illustrate this point that I want to get across? And so Jesus is looking at the crowd and he says, how can I illustrate to you the, what you're missing here and what I really want you to know? So he really answers his own question in the same verse. So again, look at the second part of verse 16. Here's what it's like. This generation is like a child sitting in a marketplace who call out to other children and say, hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't respond. You didn't dance, which is what a flute would, would indicate. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, you know what the marketplace is. The marketplace is just what we would call a city square or any place that you would do your normal shopping or socializing. But as anybody who would have a family would go out into the marketplace, and this is you, you've done this if you have your own families, you know that there are times where children can be a little bit challenging in the marketplace because they get a little bored, right? Or they may just not have the wherewithal to stay focused on the excitement that you're having at the moment or just what you have to do. I remember growing up as a child, I was that way. My brother and I would go with my mom into the store and she loved to go, uh, especially clothing shopping when she would have the opportunity. And I can remember how bored to tears we were. And when she would be looking through the racks of clothes, and my brother and I, who were really close in age, we would just hide in between the clothing and go from little rack to rack and try to hide from mom and she would find us and all was well. But it was because it was boring to us. Well, Jesus is just picking up on something similar here. As a family would go out into the marketplace, the children needed something to do. And so what they did is they would come up with a, a game to play. And in that day, there were two games, probably many more, but Jesus is picking up on two of them that everybody would have understood. One was the wedding game, and the other one was the funeral game. That sounds like a lot of fun, right? It was a game where the kids would pretend to act like adults. And so when it came to the wedding game, it would be a time of festivities and activities, and they would be thinking in their little minds, oh, this is great, let's do this, let's sing a song, and let's dance, and let's be full of energy. But then when it came to the funeral game, it was just what it sounds like. Ugh. Let's pretend also that it's the sadness of times, and, and everybody is mournful. And so they would even play... Uh, the songs of, in their minds and hearts of what they would hear people singing of sad and somber things. Like a, that's why Jesus brings up this issue of the dirge. They would either recite some poem or they would sing, in this case particularly, because he says it that way, a sad song. But the problem is that he's bringing out is that like any child who wanted to play their favorite game, some would want to play the wedding game and some would want to play the funeral game. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that or not. But again, if you're a child growing up with a sibling, you can appreciate that, that there were times where you may have said to your sibling or they may have said to you, hey, let's play this game. And you said, I don't want to play that game. Or you're the oldest, and so why do you always get to pick the game? Or why do we have to do this? Or I want to do this. And so you understand that there can be some consternation there between the two of you. And eventually, if that goes long enough, it becomes a little bit of a critical spirit, which says, just what I was alluding to, is why do you always get to pick the issue? Why do you always get to do what you would want to do? And so the Lord uses that as an illustration really to make his point, which is basically to say you're just like children who are critical towards one another over a game to play in the sense that you are just doing the same thing to John the Baptist because he's different from the person that you really wanted him to be. Notice now, as Jesus gives that illustration about the children, putting it in their minds of that picture and that type of gaming and criticalness that comes towards one another, even as little kids, he says this in verse 18. Listen, for John, speaking of John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Now, that's a ridiculous statement, but what he means is they're making fun of John because of his different lifestyle. John was a different kind of guy. You know, he had a different message. Remember what that was. It was a message of repentance. It was a message that was like a funeral dirge. Because who wants to hear about repentance? Who wants to hear a message that says, I have to change my heart? Who wants to hear a message that if you don't, 
the consequences will be. You see, nobody wants to hear that kind of thing. Our sinfulness wants us to say, oh no, I like it like this, and so this is the path that I'll go on. This is what I'll follow, and this is how I'll lead. Now, it is true that John did have a very serious message, and often serious messages, just like today, bring that sense of somberness. But not just somberness, it's somber because there are often in messages that are very serious where there's some emotional challenge there. There's some spiritual challenge that causes us to have to really focus on what's being said. That's kind of like a funeral. You go to a funeral, now, unless you're a believer and you understand the things of God. In fact, growing up, I didn't really understand the joy of a <coughs> excuse me, Christian funeral until uh, I was in our church in Lynchburg, just really as a parishioner, before I was in ministry. I remember the pastor, when Debbie's uh, grandmother passed away, he stood up and he said, this is a joyful occasion. I looked at him and I thought, the guy was crazy. I thought, how can you say that? She's dead. Every funeral I've been to was horrible. But he made it one that was really, really great because she was a believer and he was able to share the joy of what it means to be a believer. But in a sense, though, most funerals bring about the sense of somberness. It's like, this is not exciting. There are some people who like to go to funerals, but a lot of people don't because of that reason. They'd rather go to a wedding. They'd rather go to something exciting and, and, and joyful. <clears throat> but John's message was kind of like a funeral to the people. And so they say, you know, we don't like John's message. We don't really want what he has to say. And they became critical of him. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. John came to tell you about the way into the kingdom. But even more than that, he came to share with you that I am the king. He prepared the way. But you've ignored him. And you've ignored him to the point where you have become critical in who he is, because like many people, as I've already been saying, they don't want to hear that kind of message. They don't want their souls to be in jeopardy. And so what they do is they say, oh no, give us a message that will make us feel good. Help us to feel better about ourselves. Well, the message that John was giving was, listen, what better message could there be but that the Messiah is here? He's come to change you. He's come to give you a part of his kingdom. But there's certain parameters that have to be accepted if you're going to be a part of his kingdom. But again, the people said, oh, that message is so depressing. Who wants to hear that? <coughs> yeah, I'll take the kingdom, but I don't want to have to change my life. Why do I need to change? What needs to be different? And that should sound familiar to you. I'm imagining, like most everyone, that you, there was a place in life and time where you said, I don't see my sin. I don't see anything sinful about me. Most people are at that place. Now, sometimes children are receiving Christ or will receive Christ at a very early age, and they don't have that same kind of experience. But for those of us who didn't come to the Lord until we were adults, you know that there were times in our life where we thought, I'm not so bad. I mean, look at that guy over there. Look at that lady over there. They're the bad people. I don't really need to make any changes to my life. Well, the Jew thought, hey, I'm a Jew, so I'm a part of Abraham, and I'm going to be in the kingdom anyway. What's there to repent of? And so they ignored the message of God because the message was not just for the Jew that you're automatically catapulted into the kingdom because you're of Abraham's seed. Paul made that abundantly clear in Rome, but he's basically, he's very clearly saying, no, every soul is sinful. And every soul needs to therefore repent. But who wants to hear that? Now, all of that, again, brings about a critical spirit, that kind of mentality towards the lack of desire to change. And so there are a couple reasons for that critical spirit. One is what I just said, because people are sinful, but because also people have become cynical in their sinfulness. Let me explain that a little bit. Cynicism is that idea of distrust, or basic unwillingness to follow what somebody says in humanity. There's a lack of sincerity there anymore. And when you become cynical, it's because Something has happened or some things have happened that have caused you to go, uh, I'm not so sure I'm willing to listen to you very much anymore. And there are a lot of people that are like that, where something or someone has not met their expectations. Maybe they had a certain idea about the way things should be or how a relationship should have been. Maybe they were excited about a particular job, always wanted a certain job. I remember I've met people like that in my life. There was a man who 
Well, when I was at Liberty University, all he ever wanted to do was be a teacher at Liberty University. And when things didn't fully work out the way he thought it was going to work out there, and that's just one example of many places, it's easy to have a critical spirit towards the situation. Could be you've always wanted a new house. Maybe you've always wanted a particular child. You couldn't wait, in fact, as a new parent to have a child, only to watch that child grow up and learn the things of God, but not necessarily follow the things of God. And so maybe over time, you've allowed yourself to not only become critical of the things of God, but you become cynical to the things of the Lord. And that really does happen. There are people who will not deny that God exists. Most people have the awareness, because God has put it into us, to believe that there is at least some higher power. But when God doesn't manifest himself in the way that they thought, or this may be you, have thought over the years, you start losing hope in him and even become cynical towards God, not able really to put your full trust and confidence in him like you once had. I've listened to people over the years. I've watched people over the years become cynical over the things of God and allow that cynical, critical spirit to cause them to go further and further away from him. One writer put it this way, that a critical, cynical heart leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. There are people that I have known over the years, and as I called names, you would even recognize the names, that have allowed the circumstances of life to do just this, to become so critical that they're cynical about anything that's spiritual anymore, and really basically deny the things of God, and deny the things of God's people, and everything that the Word of the Lord has taught. And so it's a very serious and very challenging thing. So the Lord is saying, look, this is what you have done. This is what this generation is like in his day. You become critical. Now, in John the Baptist's case, the people chose not to believe. They didn't like who John was. They saw what he did and how he was, and they knew that the prophet Elijah was to come before the coming of the Messiah, but because John was kind of weird, quite honestly, they couldn't accept him as the Elijah. And we've been through that over time, so I won't go into that very deeply, but when Jesus says, no, he is the spirit of Elijah, the people didn't accept that. They just... They couldn't get it, and so they became critical of John the Baptist. And that's what Jesus is talking about in that earlier verse. You become critical of him, but he is who I say he is. But your spirit has missed the point. Now, moving on, he says, let's talk about me first. In verse 19, he says, the son of man, that's me, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, I was just the opposite of John. I was not the funeral guy of the funeral game, but I'm the wedding host. I'm the one who brought the life to the party. I'm the one who came rejoicing because the king is now here, the celebration. You remember when Jesus was born, the angelic host celebrates the birth of Christ. And so he's the, he's the, the wedding guy. I spent, Jesus would say, all my time with the people of all walks of life because I came for this one reason, which is to rescue souls so that they will have the hope of eternity. But you didn't like that message either. You're just like the children in in the illustration. You don't like that story? You don't like this story. And they became critical of him as well. And because Jesus came for all people, the drunks, the sinners, the prostitute, those who were sick and in need of a Savior, they said, oh, he's just a drunkard because he affiliates himself with the drinking people and he eats too much. Even though he's just the opposite of John the Baptist, we're going to reject him too. That's the the illustration of the generation. Again, that may be some of you. Maybe you're one who started your journey with Jesus many, many years ago. Or maybe it was just some time ago. And you were excited at one point to learn all about him and to memorize his word. And I've known people like this, even in their adult life, memorize their word. But over time, things just didn't quite turn out the way that you thought they were going to turn out. You had a certain expectation of how your life was going to turn out. But when Jesus didn't fulfill what you thought was going to happen because you gave your life to him, and all the joy you thought was going to come from everything that you touched, you too became critical of him. And eventually that may have moved into this 
cynical spirit also. Now, when a person becomes so cynical and so critical, even of the Lord, they begin to reject even the truth of who he is. Because it's not really Jesus they really wanted in the first place. This is really what's the problem is what I'm saying to It's not Jesus that they really want. What they really want is a God of their own making. A God who gives them what they want. A Jesus who's going to give them a happy life. A blissful life. A peaceful life. A life with no problems, no issues, no concerns. This is a very common problem with new believers. They would hear the message of the gospel and have a wonderful experience with the Lord initially. But then as life goes on and they see challenges in the way and they still find themselves struggling with certain sinful inclinations and tendencies, all of a sudden they begin to question and wonder, what did Jesus really do in my life? I don't really see a lot of changes. And so what's the problem with Jesus? And they blame him. And when things don't change over time, the worst case scenario is they end up leaving him or they create a God in another way and put their trust in some other thing, thinking, well, Jesus didn't do it for me, so I'll figure it out myself, which in turn leads people to act the way that they do. Look at the world predominantly, and this is what happens. People may not follow after God, but again, every soul knows that there is a God because God put it in the heart of man to know that. Paul brings that up very clearly in Romans chapter 1. But because... They don't like the way life is, but yet they want to follow some kind of power, or at least a higher power, and in some cases, God himself. The sad part is they'll change the word of the Lord to make it fit what they want to do. This is a lot of what we're seeing in our culture. Oh, I believe in the Lord. But we'll leave that part out, because that doesn't really feel good, and it doesn't fit well with how I think things ought to be. It doesn't fit my life in the way that I feel about myself. And so we'll just push that out as that's not really inspired by the Spirit. This will be what I'll do from now on. I was telling the early service that I recently was contacted by someone who gave me a sad message that after 42 years of marriage, their spouse has asked them for a divorce. And they've come from the, from the angle of what I was just saying, that God has given to them this freedom to go out. And both of them are believers, and so that is automatically an opposition to the word of the Lord. Uh, but one of them is using scripture to uh, justify the means, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. When we get to a place where life doesn't turn out the way we thought it was going to be, when in this situation the spouse is not the way they wanted them to be all these years. All of a sudden, I can't deny God anymore, but I'll manipulate God's word in order to make it fit the way that I want it to be. And so all of that really comes from a critical spirit. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What he's really saying there is that when ungodly wisdom is followed, it only produces corrupt deeds. Let me say that again. When ungodly wisdom is followed, it only produces ungodly deeds. Now, the opposite is just as true. When we follow true wisdom, true biblical wisdom, then we have godly deeds that will come from it. But the reality is everyone who follows their own way of thinking and rejects God and his truth <coughs> is producing deeds that are in opposition to everything that God wants to do. It really needs to be a very serious thing. Underlying all of what Jesus is saying here in this illustration, he's just simply saying to the people, look, here's an illustration. You're like little children for not getting their way. You're not liking what God has given to them. And so you want to change the game. And you become critical. And that has led even to cynicism. And that kind of life begins with when a person rejects me, Jesus would say, and who I am. Which is to Save you from judgment. That's what Jesus came to do. The glorious news of the gospel, the good news is, listen, you're sinful, and that sin is keeping you from entering into the kingdom of heaven, but I've come to give my life in your place so that you can have freedom for eternity to live with the Father. That's why he came, he would say, which is also why there can be no good news of the gospel if there's not bad news to talk about first. Back to the beginning of the message, meaning you have to understand the message of the Bible, and you've got to take all of it 
not just the price of joy. It doesn't work that way. But again, we're living in a culture, and it's no different. I'm saying that now for us. It's no different than the way it's always been. Man is very good about picking and choosing. Okay, so that's the critical spirit warning. Here's the second one for today. Jesus condemns the heart of indifference. The heart of indifference. I'm not going to read verses 20 through 24. I read those just a minute ago, but find your place in your Bible there, or at least watch them on the screen. If you notice what Jesus is doing now, he's moving from his point to give a couple illustrations about people groups, in particular cities, who are living out exactly what he's talking about and the judgment that's going to come upon them. That's what's happening in verses 20 through 24. So he's rebuking these cities where he had specifically done most of his miracles. And that's a very interesting thing. But yet the people still rejected him. Well, how did they reject him? They rejected him by continuing on with their daily lives, seemingly unaffected by all that was happening around them. I want you to go in your minds, if you will, with me into these places that Jesus had visited. This was literally the king of all kings, the Messiah, the Lord of lords, had come from heaven, publicly now displaying himself as a miracle. In fact, the people will say, we know, Nicodemus, you remember, said in John 3, we know that nobody can do this unless God is with him. They knew that there was something different about Jesus. But you remember as we were going through the earlier chapters in Matthew, as Jesus even was doing the miracles that he was in Capernaum, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, they were amazed at what he did, the healings that he did. But yet, in some way, according to the Lord, they had become indifferent to him. As if to say, we acknowledge that you do the miracles. We acknowledge that you are an amazing teacher. You can do all kinds of things that are difficult to explain. But since we don't really believe that you're God, because you remember the catch in Hebrew mind was, no physical man could be God. That God could not take on physical presence. But that was a total misunderstanding of his word. They would say, we pass. We're not going to believe. I mean, there's no way we can accept you, uh, but you're entertaining. I mean, you've helped us, and we're excited about that. And this certainly wasn't everybody, but he's talking about the generation as a whole. You might say, well, I can see where indifference is an issue. I mean, people believe and others don't, so what's the big deal? Why is the Lord going in this direction? Well, the big deal is indifference says, God, you're not worthy of my time. You are not worthy of my effort. And if he's not worthy of my time, then he's not worthy of anything from me. That's what indifference is. It's that idea of, eh. you know, you ask somebody, how's church today? And they say, yeah. That's an indifferent act. That's that concept of, there's no big deal. Now, wait a minute. What you're telling me is that you were literally in the presence of the King of Kings. And by the way, you know that this morning, right? Amen. You realize Jesus is with us? Yeah. You realize that when the church gathers, the Spirit of God is in our midst, going to and fro the hearts of men and women, searching every corner, every aspect. And to leave here and say, how is church? It's okay. Really? That's all Jesus did for you. That's the impression he made of you. Maybe you're missing the point. Maybe you've become indifferent. Maybe you're critical in your spirit. So Jesus says to these particular cities who have that attitude, he gives some of illustrations now. Look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. And woe to you, Bethsaida. And that woe word is a rebuke. It's a condemnation. As if the Lord is saying, I rebuke you. Of course, I rebuke you that say, I don't know about you, but that kind of gives me the willy willies. And I'm going to think about the Lord's rebuke. But this is what he's saying. Why is that? It's because he's saying, look, to you I revealed myself. This is different from the days even of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus did do miraculous things in those days, and he did appear in certain times, and the Holy Spirit did at times come upon people. But now Jesus is saying, to you cities, 
I physically manifested myself before your very eyes. I spoke to you. I touched you. I healed your sick. I did amazing things. And you basically just shunned me. You did nothing with me. And so there's only one thing left. If you don't receive who I am, the one who came to pay the debt of your sin, the eternal punishment for you, taking upon me, there's only one thing left for you. If you don't let me be the gift to you who does that, you must suffer your own judgment. There's not but two ways. You either follow the Lord and allow Christ to do the work through you and in you as the gift of salvation, or you take on the judgment. In other words, I like to say it this way. Somebody's going to pay the bill. Somebody's going to pay the bill. Either Jesus is going to pay the bill for your soul, or you're going to pay it. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. You rejected me. And so he's saying basically, listen, it's one thing to hear about me and to pay no attention to me. That will be dealt with it as, as well. But here's the problem with you two cities. I came and did this work in your presence. To be indifferent to me that way is to be dealt with in a much stricter way. In other words, there's a greater accountability for those people who had the presence of God in their midst and rejected him than those who heard nothing about him or heard stories or never had the same kind of examples. Beloved, listen, that's you and me today. The Spirit of God says to the church through the word, and I'll read this to you in Hebrews 10 just a moment, in a moment, but the Lord is saying to the church, listen, I manifest myself through my spirit in your very hearts as my people. But if you reject me, number one, you prove you don't belong to me. But secondly, I have to judge that because there's only one recourse. And that's going to be far worse. Hebrews 10, 26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, the Hebrew writer is saying to the Jewish people, look, when you take your animal for sacrifice, the priest will offer it up on the altar and you'll be appeased of your sacrifice. Or God will be appeased and, you're, and he'll be satisfied for, your, for your, your gift there. But if you just continually willfully sin, no sacrifice is going to take care of that. This is a rebellious heart. Verse 27 of Hebrews 10 the only thing left is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's what you have to expect. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, if I'm going to say this in another different way, I'm trying to say this as many ways as I can, it's better for a person to have never heard the truth of repentance and salvation than to have heard it and rejected better if you have never heard it, which also means for everybody who's heard the message of salvation, and you say you know the gospel, you say that you know Jesus is Lord, he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you say you know that, and you still don't surrender your heart to him, you are under far greater judgment than even the most lost soul that has heard, but never been in that same situation. And you can understand that, can't you? God's anger against that? You know, you and I live out our lives basically the way God built us to live them. In other words, we feel what we feel because God put his spirit into us. We think and we do and we operate a lot of the ways naturally that we do because that's the way the Father is. So when you and I as parents have children that we have taught and we've shown mercy to, we've been gracious to them, we've fed them, we've clothed them, we've housed them, we've paid their bills for them, we've done everything we can and leading them to the truth and they grow up and they basically reject and shun all of that, there's a sense in which there's little mercy left. I've given to you everything that I can give to you as a loving parent. And so now... You have to go and figure this out on your own if that's what you're going to do. That's the story of the prodigal son. The father loved his sons. The one stayed. You remember the one said, no, I want my inheritance now. I'll go do what I want to do. I'll go live the life I want to live. And the father said, no, that's not a good idea. But here, you're grown. Take your inheritance and go do. All the while, the father is waiting for the child to come back. 
And finally, under God's hand of judgment, comes back and is made right with the Lord. But all of us know that there is a time in all of that where we as parents have to say, listen, I've done for you what I can do, and you've rejected it. And so go and live the life that you're going to live, but you're going to suffer the consequences. It's the reaping sowing principle. And so as parents, we understand God's mind behind this, as much as he is infinite, we can see his point in this. So as much as the people should have repented, back to the text now, because of John's message, they more so, more so should have repented because Jesus was with them. But many did not. And so going on now, look at this. Here's what he says in verse 21, the second part. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, just a little context here. Jesus is giving an illustration that the people would have understood, but we need to understand that Tyre and Sidon were pagan, godless cities. They were well known for their immorality and their involvement in Baal or satanic worship. Very clearly uh, known to the people. In fact, the city of Tyre was so full of violence and pride and injustice that we're told, according to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that the Lord destroyed the city. But don't miss this. Because this is Jesus' point. He's pointing the people to those cities and he's saying, now listen, as wicked as those cities were, if they had seen what I did in front of you, they would have repented. And they would have been saved. But you have And therefore my judgment will be great upon you. Very, very challenging. Similarly, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, you remember Capernaum, right? That's where all the miracles were done. This is what I was saying a moment ago. It's where Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. It's where he healed the nobleman's son. He healed the demoniac. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. He healed the woman with the hemorrhage. Remember this all out in the open? Just as he's going, the blind man, the centurion's servant, the demoniac, the paralytic who they laid uh, lower down through the roof. All of that was in Capernaum. And Jesus says in verse 23, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? In other words, he's asking a question. This is a rhetorical question. Oh, you think you're going to get to heaven? No. I tell you, you will not. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred, and watch this, if the miracles had occurred now into a different city, Sodom, we all know about Sodom. Even if you're not a believer, you've heard of Sodom. Which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say that you will be, for you it will be, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So, again, instead of repenting and putting your full faith in me, like you should have, if you look the other way, you are indifferent. Big deal. Thanks. Thanks for the healing. Thanks for the present. But he says you will not enter into heaven, but you will in fact go just the other direction into eternal punishment. And similar to Tyre and Sidon, even Sodom would have been spared had they seen what Jesus did in Capernaum. Remember, Sodom was Old Testament, at least as far as our understanding goes. We may not understand, but there was an Old Testament story from the book of Genesis where God literally destroyed the city because of its unbelievable perversion, its gross gross sin before the Lord. In fact, one writer put it this way, Sodom is that city that gives us the synonym for moral depravity and has infamous distinction of lending its name to the most extreme forms of homosexuality and sexual bestiality. When a group of Sodom's worst perverts tried to rape the angel of Lot's house, they were struck blind. But their homosexual enslavement was so intense that even after being blinded, they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway in order to satisfy their perverted lust. That's Genesis 19.11. We know the story of Sodom. We know how the Lord rained down fire and brimstone on that city because of his wickedness. And the Lord points the people to that picture, and he says, you, Capernaum, with me in your midst, with all that I did in front of you, didn't spend its time nearly as badly in perversion as Sodom did. For all we know, Capernaum was a pretty normal city. People just living their life like you and I do. But Jesus says, look, 
they will be judged, Sodom will be judged far less severely, or would be, if they'd have seen what I've done in your midst. But because you've rejected, the judgment will be even more severe than when the time comes to judge Sodom. Why is that? <clears throat> because even, beloved, the most moral, kind, gentle soul who lives their life without Christ and rejects him as God, even in a religious way, fulfilling religious obligation, is more repulsive to God than the person who sins and knows it and repents of it. That's the reality of what the Lord is saying. And why are they so repulsive? Because instead of responding to him in repentance and submission, they pass by the cross and they just basically say, that's nice. And they go there anyway. Because grace means nothing to them. Mercy means nothing to them. Because they never examined their heart and really seen the wickedness in their soul. And so Christ's salvation, his sacrifice on the cross, had no effect. And Jesus says, that soul, there's only thing, one thing left, and that is the judgment. So it leaves us with a question, really, and that is, who is Christ to you? Is he the living God? Is he the one in your heart that he says he is? Is he the King of Kings? Is he the Lord of Lords? Have you fully surrendered to him? Have you given in your life and not just lip service, not just going through the motions, but saying, Lord, I see. I may not understand it all, but I realize that I'm distant, I'm separated from you, and my sin will bring judgment on me, and so I give my life to you. Maybe you're the one who's had the critical spirit. Maybe you're the one who's been indifferent to the Lord. Even growing up in the church, you've done all the things of the church life and heard the teachings about him, heard all the truth, well, now it's time to make the change. That's what Jesus is saying while he's here in this story. He's saying, look, I'm with you. I'm here. Turn to me. Do this while you can, because judgment is coming. When I come again, it will not be pretty. But now is the time of salvation. Give your souls to me, and I will set you free. Otherwise... The outcome of your eternal life is in great jeopardy. That's a sad, tough message, isn't it? That's challenging. There's not a person alive that wants to hear that kind of message. But it's truth. It is the word of the Lord. God is filled with warnings for us. Why? Because he knows better than we do what's coming. That's why he came to rescue us. That's why he came ahead of his judgment, so that we wouldn't have to endure that. So no matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, what life has been like, if you've been the most gloriously religious person but never trusted Christ, or you've been the most wicked of sinners who have rejected and spit upon Christ, if you'll just open your heart, the Lord will take you, and he'll pay the debt of your sin, and you will enter into his eternal kingdom with him one day. If not, there is nothing left. But lest I leave you with a less than encouraged state of mind, would you listen to something that a friend of mine sent me, and we'll close with this. It comes from a man named George Swinock. It's called The Christian Man's Calling. He writes, No man is judged healthy by a flushing color of his face, but by a good complexion. God esteems none holy for a particular carriage, but for a general course. A sinner in some few acts may be very good. I mean, Judas repents, Cain sacrifices, the scribes pray and fast, and yet they are all very false. In the most deadly diseases, there may be some intermissions and some good prognostics. A saint in some few acts may be very bad. Noah is drunk, David defiles his neighbor's wife, and Peter denies his best friend, yet these persons were heaven's favorites. The best gold must have some grains of allowance. 
Sheep may fall into the mire, but swine love night and day to wallow. And here's what I really want you to hear. A Christian may stumble, and he may even fall, but he gets up and walks on his way with God's commandments. The bent of his heart is right. The scope of his life is straight. And thence he is deemed sincere. You know what what this writer is saying? God knows that we're not perfect. God knows we have faults. God knows that there are times where we waver in our faith. That's not the issue. The issue is, in the times of our weakness, are we still for Jesus? Are we still bent towards him? Are we still desiring to walk with him and to learn from him and to follow him in all ways in our life? That's the heart of the true believer. It's not whether we fail or not. It's what we do with our failures. It's how we get back up again and how we continue on in this life. That's the soul that's been saved. It's the soul that says, Lord, I can't do this without you. I cannot live the life that I need to live without your help. And the Lord comes in to that heart and says, I know. That's why I've come. Just trust me. And so, again, God is not looking for perfection because his son is perfect. He looks to us through his son. And that makes all the difference. What he wants from us is a heart that's for him and a heart that wants to serve him. And he can do a lot with that. Amen? Amen. We're examples of that, aren't we? Everyone has to trust in the Lord. Okay, well, let's take time now to observe communion. Let me just preface this by saying that as much as we often do this on our once-a-month basis, we never want to minimize the importance of it. This is a holy moment, but not more holy than everyday life. And what I mean by that is, it is a very special time when we stop and remember everything I just said, which is the Lord gave his life, his body, his blood for us so that we might be free. That should be clear in the mind. But it should never be thought that taking part in communion is more holy than how God wants you to live on a day basis. In other words, God doesn't want us to categorize our spirituality. We live today the same as we lived yesterday and tomorrow. It is just through this time where we recognize and acknowledge full-fledged, if you will, what Christ has done for us. So take that little cup there with you. It was given to you. If you don't have one, we've got some in the back. On the bottom, there's a little tear-off. There's a little piece of wafer in there. And take that, and um, let's listen to what the Lord says through First Corinthians. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I received from the Lord, evidently getting his instruction directly from Christ while he was being taught in the wilderness, that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And so he's talking from the point where Jesus was in the Passover up to the upper room just before his crucifixion. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus was not literally saying, This is my physical body. But Jesus was using a symbolic picture to help us to see the truth of what he was about to do. And so he simply said to the disciples, Take this if you believe in who I am. And eat all of it. Let me consume you. In your heart and soul. And so symbolically, we do that right now, remembering that Christ gave his body. So do that, if you will, in an attitude of repentance. Verse 25, Paul will write, In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's so much in that. I wish I had time to just exposit all of that. But just understand that the Lord is saying, look, I'm about to give the ultimate sacrifice of my life for you. And so if you believe who I am, then take part in this and 
do it as a time of remembrance of what Christ did for you in sacrifice for your soul. the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. You know what he's saying? An indifferent manner. A critical manner. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man who examines himself and in so doing he is eating the bread and drinking the cup. For he who eats and drinks drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So we are to judge ourselves. So the God will not have to. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, although it's very difficult to preach, difficult to hear. But Lord, we do know it's true because you've told us that your word is true. All of it. And so Lord, we hear you sometimes begrudgingly because of our flesh, sometimes even unwillingly. But Lord, we do hear you. And so in the midst of our sinfulness, our fleshliness, we acknowledge once again that you are God and we are not. And we ask you to forgive us and the things that we do that displease you. We thank you, Lord, for those who have trusted you. There is no need to be saved again. There's no need for you to hang on the cross for them again. Your work is done. It's finished. And we know that because you told us that you now 